Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Pat Flynn, and today we are continuing our fascinating and extended discussion around this wonderful new volume called Minding the Brain, Models of the Mind, Information, and Empirical Science. I have the three editors with me today, Angus Manouge, Brian Krause, and Robert Marks. And boy, we have covered a lot of territory so far. So if you have not heard the first and second part of this episode, I am going to strongly encourage you to listen to those. We covered many of the difficult, if not insuperable problems facing physicalist models of the mind. We began to explore alternative ranges of options, and we discussed where we believe the best empirical data leans, in which direction, which is the broadly dualist direction. So what I want to do in part three is begin to explore in a little bit more detail some of these other options, dualism and hylomorphism and idealism. Obviously, we're not going to be able to cover them all, but I'd like to give people a, a good idea of what is being proposed and some of the motivations for at least some of them. And then, of course, I would like to talk a little bit more about artificial intelligence. This is all the rage these days. Uh, people have lots of questions about AI. So trying to get some conceptual clarity around AI and what sort of predictions we think we might be able to make, depending on what position we hold in philosophy of mind. So gentlemen, thanks again for doing this. It's great to be back with you. Great. Yeah, great. Glad to be here. So if we, if you wouldn't mind, uh, Dr. Manoj, we'll start again with you. You obviously have identified yourself as something of a dualist, but of course, dualism comes in different flavors. I'd be curious just to hear a little bit more about uh, the position that you find most tenable and some of the some of the problems you think that uh, that it might be able to solve uh, related to contemporary philosophy of mind. And we'll just go from there. Yeah, I suppose I would describe myself as uh, an Augustinian uh, dualist if I was uh, asked to be specific about it. And that's because although I find some of uh, Descartes' uh, arguments uh, persuasive, I, I do think it's reasonable to say that the, the soul or the mind is uh, located where the body is in the sense that it is always present wherever there is sensation uh, throughout the body. It's just that the mind is located in a different way than physical objects are located. So um, only part of the body can be present in any of its parts, but it seems that the mind is wholly present anywhere that there uh, is sensation. And I think that the, the primary reasons for being a, a dualist in that sort of sense that we find in introspection that there is a unity of consciousness, that all of our experiences and thoughts belong to uh, one subject, and that we also need to assume that unity at and over a time in order to account for rationality itself, in particular the rational activities of a scientist. So, for example, if I have a, a hypothesis I wish to test, and so then I design an experiment and I look at the results to see if they show that my, my prediction is uh, true or false. I have presupposed in that whole activity that I'm the same person who had the hypothesis and who designed the experiment, who survives long enough to actually um, determine the results of that experiment. For that to make sense, it seems to me that we have to have a subject which persists over time so that we're the very same person who made the prediction uh, who later on finds out whether that prediction uh, is true or false. And, and in general, I think the reason this is so overlooked, as I uh, argued in my uh, earlier book, Agents Under Fire, is because, of course, scientists spend most of their time focusing on their objects and don't tend to think very much about what they themselves as scientists are doing. And there seem to be presuppositions that one makes in doing science, and uh, among those are that you are a conscious subject who persists over time in uh, the work of your scientific uh, discovery. And so I see dualism really as not a foe but a friend of science. It's, it's there in the background to make sense of the rationality of science it itself. Yeah, that's a really great point, Dr. Manoj, and something we weren't able to fully discuss in the previous episodes, but I think it's at least worth bringing up now, um, is not just the unity of the subject, right, which is very difficult uh, if you're coming from a physicalist perspective to describe 
uh, how we achieve such unity from such a, a base of, of disparate, unintentional uh, entities, right? Uh, but also the binding issue, right, of how that unity is maintained over time, especially when it seems like a lot of our material parts are kind of being swapped in and swapped out. Do you think that, that those issues are something that can be covered by all the alternatives equally well in terms of substance dualism, hylomorphism, and idealism, and is just a problem for physicalism? Or do you think that uh, some of those positions are theoretically uh, more advantageous than others for the, call it the, the, the binding and the unity problems? Yeah, so what I would say is that there are some issues where I think that sort of traditional substance dualism, hylomorphism, and idealism can do uh, an equally good job of accounting for them. And then there are some other issues where um, there there might be a reason to prefer uh, one option to uh, another. Um, So, for example, when I look at uh, hylomorphism, I think it, it does a really good job of explaining this boundary between those aspects of our cognition that can be um, easily manipulated because they have to do with the sensory motor system, and on the other hand, the apparent independence of abstract thought uh, and free will. Uh, Going back to Aristotle, he recognized that in reason we contact universals which we have never uh, experienced, and therefore that reason must in some sense enjoy a uh, degree of uh, autonomy from our uh, physical senses uh, and brain. And he also was, um, he believed that uh, individuals have the power of self-movement and free will and uh, recognized that that as well was not something that simply, you know, emerges from matter. So I think that that position does very well there. Uh, A little bit of a challenge to the hylomorphic position, though, would would actually be the near-death experiences because uh, in that case, it's it's difficult to understand how people are having what appear to be sensory qualia, um, which are not using their physical senses. That doesn't mean the the hylomorphists could not come up with an explanation of it, but that's the kind of uh, challenge that one has. Uh, And likewise, you know, with uh, idealism, I think their strongest suit is to point out that maybe all of us are operating with sort of out-of-date physics. So their big complaint is that it's not just a physicalist, but even some dualists who tend to think of physical matter in terms of easily locatable stuff. But when we get to the quantum realm, and you have all these complex uh, superpositions of states, and we can't uh, determine the position and the momentum of a, of a particle at the same time and all these kinds of problems, we begin to lose a clear sense that we know what a material object uh, is. And um, idealists capitalize on this problem to suggest that um, maybe what's really going on is fundamentally uh, transfers of information between uh, minds and that the old idea of a physical object is is actually um, redundant. That's a kind of a very I- exciting idea. I, I'm not a proponent of it myself, but I'm, I'm very eager for it to be given a, a fair hearing. In fact, uh, one of the chapters in the book by Bill Dembski, I think, uh, deals with this, if, if I get things right. Dembski describes informational realism as the belief that the, the defining characteristic of reality is the ability to exchange information. Yes. Um, yeah. So that's, that, that's uh, his chapter, how informational realism dissolves the mind-body problem. Yeah. One thing I love about this book is how you're giving a, a platform for these different positions to get a strong initial hearing so people can go in and read the different accounts and see, you know, what what ultimately convinces them or starts to lean them in a certain direction. Real quick, again, about the binding problem, I just want to come back to this is, is, you know, I think it's pretty obvious there's a distinction between, you know, us and the modes of us. Uh, so, for example, you know, I have my thoughts, I have my emotions. But what binds all those together? Right. What are, what are they ultimately grounded in through time? And the answer is me <laughs> right it's me yeah. and we need and we need to theoretically make sense of that and that's where i think something like hyomorphism does a really nice job 
with the principles of matter and form. And if people want a, a further explanation of that, I'll encourage them to see my interview with Dr. Jim Madden, who contributed the chapter uh, to this volume on hylomorphism for some of the more details and background. But I agree with you, Angus, near-death experiences are sort of an initial uncomfortable fit within that worldview. And I've been, and even though I'm quite partial to hylomorphism myself, I've gone back and forth with many other mere hylomorphs, if you will, saying, hey, this is something we need to be able to co accommodate and think about. I think it can be done, but I, I agree that it's, it's one of those initial data points that might more comfortably fit in say a substance dualism or something like that. And it's always good to just be kind of be honest about the, you know, the, you know, the sort of limits and, and, you know, range, range of predictions for each theory. It doesn't mean that the theories immediately falsify, but it might cause you to have to rethink certain aspects or expand it in some ways. And that's always fruitful, isn't it? Yeah. And I, I think you're right. I mean, the whole goal of the, the book is to give a really fair, expansive hearing of these positions by their best proponents and without any, uh, prejudice. Obviously, as editors, we have our own opinions, but we didn't let that get in the way of making sure that the reader just gets the the, the best versions of these options from from their own uh, proponents. Yeah, and I think you've you've done an excellent job of that, and and how needed volumes like these are. So, uh, Bob and Brian, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to hear now some of your perspectives or the positions that each of you lean uh, toward in philosophy of mind. Uh, and if so, would like to hear some of your thoughts and motivations behind that. Yeah, uh, I guess I could jump in. So um, I'm I'm a bit hesitant to, to pick a favorite, to be honest. It's I think it's kind of like um, when my kids ask me what my favorite ice cream flavor is, and there's just <laughs> you know there's so much to like about the different flavors, I have a hard time picking. But I, I probably have a leaning towards uh, substance dualism, or at least I could say what 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 substance dualism I think has going for it is when we when we when we approach it through the philosophical problems. Uh, the category differences that we find between the mental and the physical, um, and this, you know, in very brief terms, it really seems that we need the mental to be rooted somehow in a non-physical substance. And this is, um, is, is what it seems to me that substance dualism uh, gets, uh, you know, emphasizes and gets right, uh, or at least to me, it seems right. And some of the objections, like the interaction problem, it seems to me like they, uh, they have good answers. Uh, that, that, that don't put it down. Well, well, if you wouldn't mind, can we? I wanted to get there because I, I, that was an aspect that I wanted to cover. So we might as well go into it right now. Is of course one of the major issues with dualism, and it's not just towards substance dualism, but this will be directed at, at hylomorphs. I'll just call them hylomorphs as well, right? Uh, is this is this famous interaction problem? So if you wouldn't mind just steering in that direction, just briefly explaining what that is and, and some of the solutions on offer for it, right? I, I I think Angus could do a far better job at that than than I could. So let me actually defer to Angus. Maybe do, do you want to try to cover cover the the what the interaction problem is and some of the the responses to that? Yeah. So the main in, interaction problem is just how can substances of two fundamentally different kinds interact without a shared uh, medium. And so um, it, it arises because it seems that physical causation is is unproblematic. Um, you know, if one billiard ball uh, runs into another one, we can see how that happens because they share the medium of space. But if uh, mind is somehow not spatial, then how does it interact with the physical? Well, of course, one thing, as I indicated, it's open to the dualist to, in fact, say the mind is located in, in space, but in a different way. Another thing, though, is to go back and ask, how, how strong an understanding do we really have of causal relations to uh, begin with? Uh, David Hume pointed out that, in fact, all we observe is one event followed by another one, and we never actually uh, observe a necessary um, connection. That's something that we assume is there, but that's a metaphysical notion, not something that we really derive from uh, our, our experience. Um, but that said, I, I think that it's fair for physicalists to um, challenge dualists to come up with some sort of explanation of what's known as the uh, the pairing problem, and that's the, you know, why is it that one particular mind is paired with one body rather than uh, another. And so why is it that, that I, when I want to raise my arm, my arm goes up and not uh, Robert Marx's uh, arm? And uh, why is it that when I stub my toe, I feel in pain and uh, not Robert Marx and so Ouch. on? Ouch. Okay. Okay. Uh -huh. that was, uh, yeah. <laughs> well played. Uh, all right. So uh, 
So what I what I've um, tried to develop in my own thinking about this is uh, an account of the uh, the flow of information, and I think this is promising because information is something which we are aware of existing in both mental and physical uh, formats. Every day we have ideas, and we say we write them down, which means that we make physical uh, marks, which with certain conventions. We can interpret as uh, words that express the thought that we had. Uh, Every day we read books, and after looking at those physical marks, we have ideas uh, in our mind. It seems that memory works a bit that way, that when we remember things, there are engrams stored in our brain. And it seems that when we decide to move our limbs, somehow our volition activates a motor control program that, that, that moves our body. So I think the, the, the way to think of this is that we need to have an intermediary that is common between the mental and physical realms. And I argue that some form of information uh, is just the right thing to do that, and that may help us to illuminate it. So I, I don't, I'm not one of those uh, philosophers who's content to uh, sweep the mind-body problem under the rug. It, it can be uh, framed as a serious problem that needs a serious uh, answer, but I'm not convinced that the dualist has got no uh, responses uh, of, available. Okay, so obviously dualists have thought about the interaction problem, and there are actually many different proposed solutions out there. We've heard just just uh, one plausible model. Uh, I know, you know, obviously thinkers like Richard Swinburne have their own. So I think, again, it's important that people actually look into this and they just don't take this um, common ob- objection as by any means decisive. This is something that very smart people have thought about and I think come up with some very clever responses. So apologies for that diversion, but the interaction problem is is so commonly brought up that I'm really glad we actually got to talk about that. Uh, so just going back to you, Brian, please continue your line of thought. Is there anything else you want to say of about what inclines you towards uh, substance dualism? I'll, I'll move on to just give a couple of thoughts on you know how, how I'm wrestling with hylomorphism. Um, so this this is I find I find hylomorphism is actually a particularly tricky uh, model to understand because um, it it is you know it's situated within a metaphysical framework, Aristotle's. Uh, metaphysics that in, uses a lot of terminology that sounds very similar to something um, you know that that, that, that it's not <laughs> uses uh, you know words like form and matter and they don't exactly uh, aren't, aren't meant to uh, invoke the same concepts that might uh, pop up in my mind or or the mind of someone off the street. Yeah, yeah, right. Just to give an example, when when Aristotle's thinking of matter, he's really thinking of a principle of individualization. Right. Yeah. Not necessarily right. something that is <laughs> that has anything to do with modern physics. It's not completely disassociated, but it's not the way that many modern people think of the term matter. That's a really good point, right? Yes, and and, and I think I remember reading. I mean, your your friend uh, Dr. Madden is, I think, just a, a wonderfully clear exponent of all of this stuff. But he, I think, if I remember right, in one of his uh, in his book, a larger book on this subject. He uh, talked about how, uh, in the hylomorphist view, that the the this matter, which is, as I understand it, it's like pure pure matter is pure potentiality. It can it, it could become uh, anything, and it doesn't. It's not that's not to be equated with the with the, like sort of the 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 matter as we think of it uh, as just physical stuff or particles or in, impersonal things. It, that it could it could in potential have. Sort of, I guess, you, would you put it like nascent uh, mental properties within it as well? Uh, I don't know if, if I've got that right or not, so correct me if I'm wrong. But right, yeah. Well, pri- well, if you want to think of something conceptually difficult, try to think of prime matter and <laughs> from an Aristotelian perspective, it's very difficult. Yeah. But what, what does it relate to modern science? I will for people who really want to go into this because this is obviously tall grass metaphysics, um, which is fun to do. Uh, but one of the principal proponents of modern hylomorphism is. Um, Dr. David Oderberg, and he's got a, an article, uh, 2021, I think, uh, asking is prime matter energy. Mm. So he tests the hypothesis of whether we think we can equate these two. And he doesn't he doesn't come down definitively on one particular side, but it's 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 worth seeing the plausibility of that hypothesis to see to see that to see the, the compatibility or at least convergence between traditional Aristotelian line of thought and, and modern physics. Interesting, interesting. Well, okay, so uh, as is pretty well known, I think the the term soul in hylomorphism is is used to not only describe the form of humans, but it's it describes the uh, a 
uh, other living things have a soul too. So plants and animals, um, just with different capabilities or qualities. And as I understand the emphasis on hylomorphism with, with what's distinctively human about the human soul is the rational capability. Right. And, and if, when you pull on this thread, you get into the, the ability to, you know, comprehend abstract, uh, truths and whatnot. And, and this is the piece that when they pull on this thread, that's what they lead to saying there's something immaterial, something that could survive the death of the, the body in a human. Which I think is uh, very interesting, and it has a lot of overlap with uh, some of the arguments you get from idealists and substance dualists. But, but one of the things about the hylomorphists that I've uh, puzzled over a bit, and, and not quite ha- sure how to connect the dots with, um, with what the substance dualists might talk about when they're addressing the issue of of qualia, or some of these other seemingly categorically distinct properties of the mental, like the fact that it seems to imply. I mean, you, that you have to have a, a, a subject. Yes. Uh, for, for, and then you've got uh, the, 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 these things um, also seem, as we've talked about, have a, a real poor fit with uh, with material, with the physical. Yes, right. And yeah. so, so I don't understand uh, why there's not more focus on that uh, in the hylomorphous system. But that that address it opens up some interesting questions because I guess the the sensory aspect actually pops up in. In in, uh, in in animals, right? So you yeah, have, you know, I look at my dog. He looks like he's he's having some quality in there. I don't know for sure, yeah. but yeah. Uh, and, and so, how does this fit in? Um, that that uh, I'm sure there's good good explanation for that. But that's that's one one place in which I tend to go towards substance dualism explanations. Yeah, Brian, those are really good considerations, and they obviously extend beyond I think what we can cover in this podcast. But it does bring up a general point, and that is that. People often talk across purposes because they haven't clearly defined terms. It's true that many hylomorphs, especially somebody like uh, Thomas Aquinas, right? Uh, for him, the thing that, that is most relevant to to our immaterial aspect is not qualia. He never thought of qualia in the way we think of today. But he would say that that is, that is a material operation. But his understanding of matter is way more expansive than the contemporary understanding, right? For him, it's rationality. It's it's a, it's our rational aspect, right? Our ability to gauge engage in formal thinking that proves and demonstrates uh, not that we're two substances, but we have an immaterial aspect to one substance, for example. And and it's and then if you want to talk about how you survive bodily death, that's a very complicated topic for Hylomorphs. And there's many different models out there, including notions of like incomplete substances until you know the resurrection and getting your body back, and a whole other topic. But I think the general point is yes, there's often a lot. There's too much ambiguity. That sometimes you think that positions might be at odds when actually when you gain conceptual clarity, they're not they're not really so different or as much at odds as you may initially think, at least within the the broad camp of dualism. That's why before we started record, Brian, I said, I don't know how to classify hylomorphism of whether or not it's dualism, because so much of that depends on these conceptual refinements that just often take a lot of time to work through, if that makes sense. Uh, Dr. Manoj may have some thoughts on this as well. I'd love to hear them, right? <laughs> seems, seems like there might be some different different opinions within the hylomorphist camp, too. Oh, d- yeah. There's not just one <laughs> one position in there. Yeah. Dr. Manoj, I'd love your thoughts on any of all that, too. And same with you, Bob. I would certainly uh, agree with that. As I, as I listen to hylomorphists, they, they, they do seem to have several different um, positions. Some of them actually almost sound as if they are um, very close to being materialists. It's just that they have a richer notion of, of matter. So that doesn't, that doesn't mean that they're materialists in the same sense that Daniel Dennett or Richard Dawkins is. On the other hand, some of them are very close to being uh, substance dualists. Those who have a sort of a, a, a modified uh, Thomistic uh, account um, because they so much emphasize what is distinctive and, uh, in, and independent in the um, the ability to um, engage in abstract uh, reasoning. And so I think that it's fair to say that there's a spectrum of positions there. And that's another thing about this book. We're trying to open people's mind to the fact that there's lots of options here that need to be thought out. And uh, we, we, are, we really want to open the conversation uh, with this book. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's great. So I, I, the reason I'm asking about your personal perspectives is really just so we can explore some of these options. So Bob, I'd love to hear from you now. Uh, coming from the computer science perspective, is there any position that you're currently leaning towards or you feel uh, is worth exploring more? Well, you know, wor- working with these philosophers, I've had to learn a lot of terms. I've had to learn a lot of uh, 
<laughs> a, a lot of terminology like uh, hylomorphic and uh, substance dualism binding, epiphenomenalism. My gosh, that's that's a word with seven syllables. Uh, <laughs> people like me don't uh, like words more than three or four syllables. <laughs> Um, and idealism. What I can comment on is uh, things which are going on in engineering now, which are attempting to measure uh, something with consciousness, for example. How is the computer world trying to establish what consciousness is? This doesn't directly address the, the theme that we're talking about, but is, um, is parallel. I'm aware of six different models that people are trying to do in order to model consciousness. First of all, I'm not even sure there's a good definition of consciousness. Um, we, we mentioned panpsychism, which is that uh, every, every material, however small, has an element of individual consciousness. So I'm sitting here with a book in front of me. My book is a little bit conscious, and we have been the lucky recipients of lots of consciousness, so good for us. Uh, there's emergence, which we've also talked about. That's number two. And this has been this has been investigated, I think, in terms of computers for numbers of years, most famously by a guy named Thomas Ray, who came up with this model of Tierra, who was going to try to do emergence. There was a whole field called artificial life, and their entire purpose was to show intelligence through through emergence. And basically that field has been abandoned. Um, there has been um well, yeah, the emergence, as we talked about, is this idea that if you exercise a horse enough, it'll it'll turn into a tractor. Uh, there is integrated information theory. This is a theory which has been developed by Tononi at the University of Wisconsin. All of these, by the way, are, are materialistic. They're trying to explain things through materialistic models. And he concludes that consciousness is 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 measured by the degree of complexity of a system. And the more complex you get, the greater that it can be conscious. There's a great chapter, by the way, in the book by uh, Summer Bringshord that explores integrated information theory and the flaws of integrated information theory. So that that that's a great read. There's the Sims theory. And this is, I don't think, something which has made it deep into philosophy. This is the idea that we're all simulations. And if we are simulations, then we are being controlled by some higher entity by this major computer program, which allows us. Elon Musk is a big proponent of this, by the way. And I don't know if it's an urban myth or not, but he has set out teams to try to prove his uh, his theory of the Sims theory, this, the, the fact that we are simulations. Yeah, well, the simulation hypothesis actually has gained a considerable amount of, of traction in certain circles, to be sure. Oh, right? I'm, so, I'm so sorry. You know, that really just kicks the can down the road, doesn't it? Yes, it does, yeah. Because because that, that means that there's greater simulations than we are, and then the questions are they simulated? <laughs> well, I mean, we brought up uh, we brought up Doctor uh, David David Chalmers. His one of his latest works is Reality Plus, the, the notion of virtual worlds and the problems of philosophy. Right. So yeah, it's 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 in philosophy for sure. Right. <laughs> it's in philosophy. I, I'm sorry to hear that. It reminds me of turtles all the way down. Um, we have, we we have simulation theory. Who does the simulation? There's another one, and there's chap there's a chapter in the book by uh, Bruce Gordon on called, called quantum consciousness, and this this looks at uh, a very interesting aspect of the quantum world upon consciousness. Now, Roger Penrose, who wrote the great book uh, The Emperor's New Mind. He said that uh, we are not algorithmic and therefore because we are not algorithmic beings that we cannot be, I, I'm sorry, the computers can't, uh, can't be creative and can't create qualia and uh, uh, don't understand what they're going to do. But he looked around and he says, well, that's because we're not algorithmic. What in the world can be non-algorithmic? And the only answer that he came up with is quantum collapse. Quantum collapse is not algorithmic. And so, therefore, he said, you know, the answer must lie here. And he worked with a, um, an anesthesiologist, and they, they came up with this thing called the Orc-Or theory. But there's been really no research into quantum consciousness that I'm aware of. And then those are five different models of, of consciousness that are being looked at from, 
I guess, a computer science, a, a, a scientific um, point of view. And then the last one is, is dualism and the type of substance dualism that we're talking about here. And this is, of course, one that that is embraced by theists. And it seems to me that, uh, that a lot of these things are, are silly. I think the Sims theory is silly. I think that panpsychism is kind of silly. The Sims theory, though, if you look at the Christian religion, are we... Are, are we uh, computer programs that are generated by a higher entity. Well, according to Christianity, we are entities created by a greater God. So does that make us simulations were created in his image? Eh, I don't know. Maybe some parallels could be made there. So that's that's my input. Yeah, well, that's that's really uh, great. And there's a, I think that opens up a, a few potential uh, paths to getting towards artificial intelligence. But I want to just hit a few of those, those uh, points all along the way, especially concerning the simulation hypothesis. Now, um, I'm with you, Bob. I think it's a, I think it's silly, uh, but silly ideas are often seriously entertained by even very intelligent philosophers. So I think it's worth maybe saying a few more things about. Now, I personally think that there's good metaphysical and epistemological arguments against this thesis, but I'd be interested to hear from any of you, particularly you, uh, Dr. Manoj, if you've thought much about this, of if there's any particular launch point or basis in philosophy of mind against uh, a thesis like the one that Chalmers is proposing or, or other philosophers or even, I guess, just owners of social media companies who hop onto the simulation hypothesis. By the way, Chalmers came out and he said chat GPT is probably, will probably be 20% sentient. <laughs> so I don't know where he comes up with this idea of sentience and uh, what model he's using, but we throw these terms around without really defining them. I'm big into definitions and we really haven't even defined what sentience and consciousness is. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm inclined to say um, I'm not really comfortable in saying too much about Chama specific uh, hypothesis, but the worry is that because of the, the scientism in our culture, when we have a difficult intractable phenomenon, we tend to redefine it in terms uh, that a particular science uh, can measure. And uh, as a result, we can spend a lot of time trying to capture some correlated phenomenon, but we're not really understanding the, 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 the thing itself. And so uh, I don't really see what simulation has to do with the understanding of what it's like to be conscious itself. After all, um, we can certainly produce now uh, machines that will act as if they are conscious, but that doesn't mean doesn't mean that they are right. And, and I'm worried that uh, in many fields, when they talk about consciousness, actually what they're doing is simply substituting something that they can uh, measure. So they they're finding a neurological correlates, or they're finding some computation. It might be true that there is, for example, um, in the IAT, that there is this correlation between a certain kind of complexity and consciousness, but that still doesn't really explain what it's like to be conscious. It changes the subject to something that we can more easily measure. You know, the thing with, uh, the thing with Sims theory that um, I find interesting is that, indeed, if we do have non-algorithmic properties, if we have properties which cannot be generated by computer programs, then whoever is our creator in this Sims world must have the ability to do a computer program for non-algorithmic things. And that, to me, seems to be a paradox. Yeah, uh, yeah. Unless they have some sort of super duper intelligence, I don't know. Yeah. Well, one thing I think, just as a as a general point, is that if you're going to kind of entertain seriously this this sim hypothesis, you really do need something like a computational theory of mind. And if if you have reasons to think that that's inadequate, then you have reasons to sort of reject that particular perspective. And of course, we a lot of what we've covered in this discussion would be exactly that, right? So let us now consider. At last, uh, artificial intelligence. Obviously, this is something that has sort of exploded on the scene in the past few years, especially with the with the emergence, if you will, of things like ChatGPT and MidJourney and what have you. And uh, what I would like to discuss uh, uh, are, is not just um, whether or not we think that ChatGPT is 20% sentient, which is an interesting question. I guess we should uh, cover that <laughs> as well. But what we think... Uh, or, or what we should predict concerning the future of AI and what limitations we think it, it might have or, or will encounter from the pers perspectives that each of us 
hold, particularly that each of you hold in philosophy of mind. Um, do you think we can get uh, some fairly confident predictions along uh, that front? Uh, Bob, I know this is an, an area that you obviously have a lot of relevant expertise. So maybe we start with you on this one. Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, this is this is a thesis in my book, Non-Computable You. Uh, there's also chapters on this in the book that we're talking about, Minding the Brain, a wonderful chapter by uh, Winston Ewart, which totally debunks the idea of super-duper intelligence. And there's a number of things which are not... Um, which are brick walls that artificial intelligence will go through. One, I think, is understanding. AI will never understand what it is what it is doing. Computer programs won't. They can add the number 16 and 14, but they don't know what the number 16 and 14 are. The greatest explanation of the lack of understanding goes back to what I'm sure you guys would know in philosophy, but the, the philosopher John Searles and the Searles Chinese room. He said that he doesn't know Chinese, can't read Chinese, doesn't understand any Chinese, so lock him in a room. And he's in this room with a number of file cabinets, and somebody slips a note through the door that's written in Chinese. Cyril looks at the note. It's in Chinese. He starts going through a number of file cabinets in the room until he finds a match to the question slipped through the door in Chinese, which he can't read. Well, it turns out on the slip of paper that he finds in the file cabinet that matches the question which is submitted is the answer to the question. So he jots down the question, and then he goes and he slips it out the door after refiling the card in the file cabinet so it isn't misplaced for the next time. Now, external to the Chinese room, it sure looks whatever happens inside of there is something that understands, um, understands Chinese. Although Searle doesn't understand Chinese, he doesn't uh, doesn't speak it, doesn't read it, yet it sure looks like it. And I think this is a smackdown of the idea that AI will, will uh, understand. AI will never understand. Now, what happens in AI with large language models like ChatGPT and other things is that uh, they're doing algorithms which are much more complex than simple table lookup. But nevertheless, it's a big number crunching machine. So the modern part of Searle's Chinese room is a, is a slip through the door of a question in Chinese. Searle puts it into this big number crunching machine. He turns the handle, out spits an answer. He takes that answer and slips it out the door. He doesn't understand what's, uh, what's going on. So I think this is really uh, important. The other thing that is a brick wall that artificial intelligence will never go through is creativity. This was wonderfully defined by Summer Bringsjord, who has two chapters in our book. And this is the so-called Lovelace test. Now, the Turing test, by the way, for those familiar with it, has been passed by ChatGPT. I don't think there's any question about that. The Lovelace test does something different, though. Um, most tests just look at the output of the artificial intelligence and try to determine the consciousness or, or whatever, the intelligence of the underlying AI by just looking at the output. Uh, the Lovelace test by Bringshord looks under the hood. He doesn't judge the book by its cover. He looks inside the book. So he raises the hood. And the, the requirement for creativity, according to the Lovelace test, is that AI will be creative if it does something that is beyond the explanation or the intent of the original programmer or programmers. And this has not been achieved yet. Every AI program which is generated has been generated because of the intent and the intellect and the creativity of the computer program. The AI itself has never generated anything which is creative. We talked offline a little bit about a recent paper, really exciting paper, that um, what happens if you take a large language model like ChatGPT and you train it with all of Wikipedia and everything in the web, and you take this large language model, and then you use the output from it and only the output from it to train another large language model. And then you use the output from that second large language model to train a third large language model. What eventually happens? Do we have artificial in general intelligence? Does it become smarter? No, it, um, it uh, suffers from something with the authors of this paper called, they call it model collapse. 
and the model actually collapses, and pretty soon the chat GPT a few generations down the road sounds like a babbling idiot. So no, the, the, this <laughs> this is not going to happen. In fact, I mentioned this to Pat, and he says, wow, before I give him the answer, he says, wow, this might have uh, some implications for AGI. And I said, yes, indeed. And it shows that AGI isn't going to work, that, that these large language models just become babbling idiots after a while. Yeah, real quick, for people who aren't familiar with the, the, the uh, AGI um, thesis, can you explain that for us, Bob? Sure. AGI is artificial general intelligence, sometimes called strong intelligence. And this was hypothesized by a Google engineer named Ray Kurzweil, who said we're going to reach the singularity. And the singularity occurs when artificial intelligence duplicates the intelligence of a human being. And then AI will go on to be a super intelligence at some point. Um, so AGI is artificial general intelligence where the intelligence generated by artificial intelligence is equal to, not simulates, but equal to that of a human being. That has not yet happened. And, um, artificial intelligences I've explained, will never understand what it's doing. It'll never be creative. And then I think, as we talked about in the previous podcast, it'll never be taught to be sentient. So uh, these are brick walls that AI will never go through. One might ask, well, what about super duper computers of the future? You know, they're going to be able to crunch numbers. Well, there's something called the church Turing thesis that basically says anything we do on a, a supercomputer today can be done on Turing's original 1930s computer. Now, it might take a billion or a trillion years to do, but computationally, they're equivalent. But uh, just because computers get more and more sophisticated, they will be still be subject to this church Turing thesis. And these arguments against understanding creativity and sentience are still not going to be breached. Uh, it's just It's just not possible. Right. That's really helpful, Bob. Thank you for all that. Angus and Brian, any further thoughts on anything concerning artificial intelligence or where you see it's headed in the future? Well, I'll just say that in terms of practical problem solving, you know, the latest artificial intelligence can seem very impressive. And that's because it's, it's producing intelligent output in this sense. It's output that it would require intelligence for human beings to generate. And so if you want to uh, create a website very, very quickly, then ChatGPT can do it probably more quickly than human uh, designers uh, can. And certainly, I don't want to diminish the power of ChatGPT. It is incredible. And I use it uh, periodically to you know help me, help me do stuff. It is astonishing. And by the way, it's recently been tied in, I believe, with Wolfram, who does Mathematica. So, if you want to ask ChatGPT to do a mathematical problem, not ask it to do some pretty sophisticated mathematical problems. It does it pretty well. It'll actually write out equations for you. It is astonishing, but it doesn't understand what it's doing. It's not creative. It's only been it's only regurgitating what it's been trained to do. Right, and so you know, in terms of the the output, it's impressive. It it can do quite well on uh, computer programming tests, for example. It can create computer programs, which is which is uh, impressive. But of course, the real issue is not the behavior; it's what intelligence uh, is. And uh, going back to Turing's uh, imitation game, the problem with the test that he designed is it's behaviorist. You, you're counted as uh, intelligent if you pass as a human as often as a, as a human does. But that, of course, is just behavior. And we know that there's no direct correlation. After all, I can listen to a humble radio and be impressed by the intelligence of the voice. But that doesn't mean that the radio is intelligent. It's simply a conduit of intelligence. And with its um, sophisticated algorithms and its ability to troll the internet, of course, ChatGPT and similar programs can troll all kinds of uh, data and put it together in impressive uh, ways, but they're not really the origin of the, the creativity. And so what we really need to pass uh, Lady Lovelace's test is that the, the, the machine actually generates some novel information which it understands and of course uh, the the metaphysical issue is that despite its great complexity there really isn't any reason to think that these ai systems are subjects that they're, they're just very complex aggregates of uh, parts 
you know, all these switches ultimately are just uh, on or off, and it's a very sophisticated uh, physical uh, system. But there is nothing which credibly could be called the subject of its states and which could be credited with understanding or reasoning or any of these higher uh, cognitive uh, functions. So it appears intelligent, but I don't see any good reason to say that it, it, it really is. Well, fundamentally, Noam Chomsky has called these large language models, um, or just generative AI in general, digital plagiarism. In fact, right now, there's a number of lawsuits going on. Uh, one, for example, is Getty Images uh, is suing. Getty Images has a library of millions of photographs that have been used to train generative artificial intelligence. So they are suing these people because they said they have violated copyright laws. We're also seeing computer programmers saying that people have, uh, th that these generative AI programs have, have stolen their their um, intellectually protected uh, software. So it's going to be interesting to see how the courts play out in terms of this digital plagiarism and copyright law. Yeah, obviously there's a huge range of issues that aren't immediately related to uh, the questions that, that are interesting us on this podcast. But I mean, certainly I have many friends that are musicians and artists that are terrified <laughs> right, of what the future is going to look like for them on this front. Oh, here's something you can tell them. Remember the uh, chat GPT generating worse and worse and become blabbering idiots on the, in the same paper, they said this would also happen with music. Oh, if you use right. music to train music to train music. Right. So you'll, you'll need, you'll need real musicians to come back in at some point. Right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. In fact, the paper concludes that in order to keep fresh, that human intelligence is required to update these generative models. That's really interesting because that's a sign of, as it were, digital entropy. And what we know is that human beings can generate new coherent uh, information when they uh, you know, design uh, a new piece of technology or they write a novel or compose a, a symphony. So we're, we're a source of coherence. But that evidence suggests that there's a kind of a, a law of uh, – information entropy that, that these systems left to themselves, if they only interact with each other, um, that information will degrade and ultimately um, become nonsense. So here's here's uh, where I would like to, um, this has been a really fascinating and rich conversation. I want to thank you all for everything that's been contributed here. I'd like to ask you each one final question. That is, what is your favorite aspect about this volume, what what really stands out about this 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 work to you, either in particular or as a whole? Um, anything else that you're excited that people discover in the volume? I'd like to hear from each of you on that, and of course, uh, Bob, if you wouldn't mind at the end, let people know the best place to get it as well. Okay, great. I, I just comment that what I think is perhaps unique about it is that it is fully interdisciplinary. It brings together disciplines that are related to the mind brain issue that that often don't talk to each other and secondly that it tries to be very fair in canvassing all of the uh, options to try and show what are the alternatives to physicalism it's fair enough to say that physicalism has has got plenty of exposure uh, and so what we want to do is just to uh, open up people's uh, minds to the possibilities and track it all the way down to what difference could it make for how I look at neuroscience or computer science or some other uh, empirical field? Yeah. Excellent. Brian, how about you? Yeah. Yeah, I'll just add to that. I agree with everything Angus said there. Add to that is that we we targeted uh, w within this book to try to make, or tar targeting a, as we thought of as a broadly academic audience. So it doesn't mean that all the chapters are easy, easy, maybe popular level book reads. It might take a little bit of concentration, but uh, what we wanted to do was to be able to have a neuroscientist who might be interested in in these philosophical models be able to read the philosophy chapters and not run into a bunch of jargon that they have to go outside the book to try to understand make them self-contained um, but still robust and and cutting edge and and current um, and vice versa with with the scientific topics so uh, that that I think is is unique and hopefully we we accomplish that excellent and Bob how about you yeah, well, I, I guess I would echo what uh, Angus said. We have 25 different uh, people that have contributed to this book. And usually many of us work in our own silos, as, as Angus said. 
we have people, and I made a list, and this is kind of this is kind of cool. We have people with expertise in computer science, philosophy of mind, philosophy of science, biology, neurobiology, cognitive science, neuroscience, business, neurosurgery, theology, computer engineering, machine learning, and psychology. So we have contributions from all of these fields in the book. And uh, I have learned I, I have learned so much outside of my silo from this. And we hope that the impact will be that other people will be able to look at this book and learn about the mind body problem uh, from a from a very over a very broad spectrum of expertise. I certainly agree. And again, I want to emphasize how impressed I've been by this volume. And don't let it intimidate you, uh, gentle listeners. Even if you're new to this, uh, everything is laid out in a remarkably accessible way. Yes, you'll be challenged, but that challenge will be very productive, I assure you. So the book, once again, is called Minding the Brain, uh, Models of the Mind, Information, and Empirical Science. And Bob, if you wouldn't mind, where is the best place for people to grab a copy of this? Well, um, the, the, the book itself has a, has a site on discovery, and it's called discovery.org slash B slash minding the brain with hyphens between it. So that's discovery.org slash B slash minding the brain with dashes. Um, like everything else in the world, it's available on amazon.com. So that's, that's a good place to uh, go to uh, purchase the book or any other places that you, that you buy books. And Bob, I believe if uh, you just go directly to www.mindingthebrain.org, uh, that will get you there too. Oh, thank you. Mindingthebrain.org. Okay, thank you. Mindingthebrain.org. Remember, mention the website three times, mindingthebrain.org. I learned that from a politician. Said that you have to do that in order to get it into people's brains. Yes, well, it's definitely effective. Gentlemen, I want to thank all of you for taking the time to have this discussion. It has been extremely enriching. And if people are just catching the the last part here, of course, I'm going to encourage them to listen to uh, part one and part two as well. I really hope we can have the opportunity to do this again sometime. Thank you all. This has been Mind Matters News. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.